Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Today we are continuing our interview with Denise Parkinson, author of Daughter of the White River, Depression-Era Treachery and Vengeance in the Arkansas Delta. This interview takes a rather surprising turn, and I wanted to let our listeners know that if there are any aspects of confinement or prison trauma which are affecting to them, they may want to either hold off from this episode entirely or skip to about the halfway point. There are some depictions of things that happened to Helen Spence that were frankly quite troubling even for us here in the studio and we're exposed to quite a lot of these accounts. So I just wanted to let everybody know that. Feel free to go ahead and skip forward if you need to. But for everyone who is ready, we thank you as always for joining us today. Denise, thank you so much for joining us again on Crime Capsule. It is such a pleasure to have you back. Thank you, Ben. It's been great so far. I'm excited. Where we left off last week, Helen Spence had just stood up in a courthouse, pulled a pistol, and shot her father's murderer almost point blank. And what was remarkable about that scene, apart from the fact that you have a courthouse execution, is that she showed no remorse. She was strangely calm as she was led away, wasn't she? Yes. In fact, one of the headlines that I remember was, she showed no remorse. And one of the main quotes that the reporters, there was a ton of AP reporters in the courtroom because they had come down to Arkansas because there had been the very first food riot of the Great Depression in nearby England, Arkansas, which was the breadbasket of Arkansas and America at the time. And so the AP reporters were in the area and they went to check out this uh, sensational uh, murder trial and they were there and they said that the only thing she replied was, well, he killed my daddy, which is just what Maddie Ross was motivated by. So that's another reason that I think that Helen Spence was a prototype for Maddie Ross of True Grit. That's kind of interesting. Do you think that if those AP reporters had not been in the area, do you think this is one of those sort of fluke situations where if national press had not been just next door, that this story would not have gained the attention that it did, that it would have just been kind of a local curiosity, kind of a, you know, Southern justice kind of thing, and would have stayed in the local community as a legend for years to come, as opposed to being put on a national stage? That's a good question, but... In the time that I've worked on this project, we've gone from having statewide media to just having paywalls and firewalls. So back then, there were newspapers in every town. There were morning newspapers, and there were even afternoon newspapers. And so there's no telling if it would have gotten the same amount of play or if it would have taken a little longer for other newspapers to pick up on the story because this was during the time when uh, outlaws were 
splashed across the front pages and Bonnie and Clyde were in the process of getting their, uh, you know, time in the media. So she was of her time and they labeled her an outlaw immediately. There's a strange kind of segue here in that immediate aftermath. You know, last week you told us about the chaos in the courtroom and the people sort of trying to flee the the chambers and, the, um, you know, the question over, did she shoot him in the front, in the back? Did she drop the gun? Did she hand the gun off? This sort of nobody was really able to track exactly what happened. All that chaos uh, sort of segues into a very unusual sense of placidity in that uh, the sheriff takes her into custody because, of course, she had no home to go to at this point. Um, sheriff takes her into custody, and she's put on what today we would really call parole kind of almost immediately. I was really struck by the fact that in your account, it's only a matter of days or weeks before she's sort of more or less remanded into his care and she can go and get a job. Yes, it's a very small community, so she was she had a bunch of eyes on her and because she knew she had to work, she quickly uh gained employment at a local cafe that was run by a man who was just reviled in DeWitt. No one could stand him, and he was very heavy-handed or ham-handed, however you want to call it, with his female employees. So that sets up the next confrontation. But uh, she definitely was with the sheriff and his his wife um, until she convinced the judge, Judge Wagoner, that she could be trusted, and she moved into a little... Uh, apartment above the cafe with a woman named Ina Mayberry, which has to be the most wonderful Arkansas name I've ever heard. She almost became herself a tourist attraction at this particular cafe, didn't she? Oh, yes, because there was a, a period of time where she was on appeal. It, it took months before it was decided, finally, she she didn't get a pardon, but she did get a lesser charge of manslaughter. So in that amount of time, she was living and working at the uh, cafe. So this is a story, Denise, not of one murder in the courthouse, but it's actually a story of three murders. For listeners who didn't join us last week, uh, the whole saga starts when a man named Jack Worrells kills Helen Spence's father in a fairly murky kind of dispute, but Helen witnesses this, and she then goes and uh, takes matters into her own hands. That's murder number one, then murder number two. And then there's murder number three, which occurs um, right after uh, this employment begins. There's a fairly mysterious set of circumstances in which her abusive, ham-handed boss was found dead in his car. And conveniently, it struck me... Conveniently, just as Jim Bohatz dies, Helen's prison sentence for killing uh, Jack Worrell's manslaughter begins. Correct. And she was investigated because she had supposedly taken a, a ride with him in his car 
And Mr. Brown remembers it as a big, flashy car with running boards. And I'm not sure what make it was, but it was very flashy. And that was the style of Jimbo Hots. And there are still, to this very day, people in Arkansas County that will argue back and forth did she kill Jim Bohatz or was she just the most likely suspect? Because after they investigated, the case went cold. And that's where the phrase popped up, well, he needed killing because there were so many people in that town that had a beef with him that could have killed him. So she was no longer under suspicion when she went to serve her term. And so you said with this reduced sentence, she... Uh, ended up getting about six to eight months in the state women's penitentiary before being paroled. Again, it could have been a much longer sentence, of course, if she had been uh, convicted on a murder charge, but she did get that reduction. Um, Tell us a little bit about the the pea farm, this women's penitentiary. It sounds like a pretty interesting place for its day. Yes, actually— I was told by the director of the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies that my book is the only book that even touches on the realities of the pea farm because it was begun as a, uh, the state legislature, you know, gave the money around 1919, then it was taken in 1920. It was a huge farmstead of a couple of hundred acres in North Pulaski County, which is located between Cabot and Jacksonville. So it's in an unincorporated, very rural area. And it was a straight up farm with a large farmhouse that they called the Big House and outbuildings that were used as dormitories. And it was very underfunded, as was everything, because it was the beginnings of the Great Depression. And so there were never more than a few dozen women inmates there at any given time. And the only guard that was on staff was himself a convicted murderer. He was a trusty guard who carried a gun to guard all the women. His name was, uh, oh, I'm blanking. Well, you can help me with that. But he was a bad egg. Was that uh, Frank Martin you're talking about? Frank Martin. Yes, yes, Frank Martin. And uh, I interviewed his next-door neighbor during the writing of the book. A a little girl had grown up, and she knew all of Frank Martin's children. Uh, He was a tenant farmer after he was paroled, and everyone knew that he had gotten paroled because he took the rap for killing Helen Spence. And maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but she said that he was a— a terrible man. He treated his children terribly and his wife terribly, and he would drink and beat his children and his wife, and her family lived down the road, and they would leave their doors open at night so that his children could come, and they'd wake up, and all the children would be asleep on their floor to get away from Frank Martin. And this guy is put in charge of several dozen women in a rural area where... Nobody can hear you scream, to use the quote from the Alien movies. Goodness. Absolutely. Wow. So what was Helen's life for those six to eight months in her first P 
period of incarceration like? Was it grueling labor out there or was it fairly uh, moderate? I mean, what were the actual conditions on the pea farm like? Possibly because she had had so much publicity and she was kind of like Arkansas's sweetheart. There was a ton of sympathy for her. She was not forced to work in the fields. So the time passed as uh, fairly uneventfully and she made friends and and she had a special friend named Catherine who was a prisoner awaiting transfer to a federal facility. So Catherine had a lot of mobility within the prison and she took Helen under her wing and Helen would tell stories. She would sing songs. We have accounts that were written to various newspapers from former inmates after Helen was, was murdered talking about how in all the time they knew her, they never heard her curse, that she would sing the old time songs that they remembered from their childhood. And and it was like a sisterhood in the prison because as we learned during the research and interviewing so many people, uh, we found descendants of some of the prisoners and they would be sent there for something as ridiculous as riding a motorcycle with a boy in the 1930s. They would be sent there. It was a dumping ground for poor girls. You know, you have some amazing detail in your book, really, about that experience of bonding uh, between the women on the pea farm. I was really moved by the intimacy of their experiences confined together, telling stories together, um, I assume occasionally talking about trying to get out of there together. But, you know, you have this sort of uh, depiction of every night after dinner, these women would sort of gather together and and just sort of talk each other to sleep, which is just so sweet, you know, and yet a sign of strength, too, because they're forming this, this cohesion, this camaraderie. You mentioned a couple of accounts from former inmates, but where did you get this information? Because as I was reading, uh, Denise, I was thinking, how on earth did Denise have her ear to the wall of this women's penitentiary almost 100 years ago? I, I was I was trying to piece that together, and I couldn't do it. Where did, where did you hear this stuff? Well, it was part of the oral tradition that was passed down from John Black, who was keeping close tabs as much as he could. They were getting information in bits and pieces from the prison. And he passed it down to Mr. Brown, who passed it down to me. But you'll be interested to know that some of the funny stories, for example, the best pranksters in Arkansas County were the Jenkins brothers. And they would get up to all kinds of shenanigans. And Helen would tell those stories. That's where I spent the last few days was visiting the Jenkins family. And they these are direct descendants of the Jenkins boys. And they the the, the funniest part was uh, she would tell about when they would get together at the rural churches and the people would show up in their buckboard cabins. If the babies got fussy during the service, the mothers would take the babies tend to them, feed them, and then swaddle them and put them in the back of the buckboard where they would sleep in the shade until the church service was over. Well, the Jenkins boys 
would go out and switch everyone's baby around. And so the people would head home for Sunday dinner and they'd get home and there'd be, well, this ain't our baby. And they'd have to go back and change it, change it all. This happened three times. So these were legends that were told. It takes a village. What can you say? Um, so she spends this first period, a little under a year, with without a whole lot of of a note happening she gets out and in one of the many twists and turns in your book that I did not see coming uh, Denise as soon as Helen Spence gets out of prison she goes right back in and she makes this really dramatic trip to a local police precinct where she has a very specific kind of conversation uh, with the local deputy sheriff. Uh, tell us just what was up with this boomerang? What what happened? You're very correct in calling it a boomerang because this was the part of my book that I gave it as I got it from the uh, news accounts. And I thought it was strange after all of these, uh, you know, news stories that had no bylines and no way to tell what you were getting, if it was just space filler and exploitation or if there was some truth in there. The story in the Gazette stated very clearly that she took an assumed name, they didn't say what name, and she took a job at a restaurant in Little Rock for a week before she went and talked to the Little Rock police detective, who was himself quite a character and very corrupt. But they named the restaurant. They said its name, Casanelli's. Now, why would that detail be in there? I think it was to throw people off because this boomerang was the reason that I had to go back years later and ask for a second edition of my book, so that we could put one paragraph in because my reader in Cabot that discovered the layout of the pea farm based on all the names of the streets in that area being named after women prisoners, he was a, he was a mailman, a U.S. postal worker. So he charted it out. He found out from one of the elderly uh, folks on the route, oh, this is where the pea farm was. Well, he looked at all of the prison files that I had received from the Arkansas Department of Corrections. And there were two pages that I did not understand. You know, I've never been in prison, so I don't understand what I, what I, I did not understand what I had. And he determined and showed me that the parole bond was signed and there was a thousand dollars and it was put up by a man named W.B. Graham, and there was an employment agreement that was signed by the same man. So it means that, as we learned after my book came out and began to question the people in the area, there was a process at the women's prison in that time of debt peonage where you could purchase a female prisoner for money, and use that as a bond, and then they would be your slave. That's what she ran away from. So my second edition of the book that came out years, it took me years begging the publisher to let me add this additional information because it really changes everything. But still to this day, there are people 
convinced in Arkansas County that she did kill Jim Bohatz. I'm on the opposite side. I think that was a huge smokescreen. Do you, well, let me ask you, do you think that this was like Murder on the Orient Express in which everybody in DeWitt killed Jim Bohatz? There happened to be a trigger man, but, you know, everybody was in on it. What is your explanation for his death? Well, he got killed with his own gun. So unless they had, you know, some kind of way to do fingerprints, they never knew. They never, it was a mystery. But when she went back and made that confession, it is on, 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 based on my research and the people that have helped in the research, we all think that that was a smokescreen because nobody at the prison wanted anyone to know that they were basically sexually trafficking and selling women. There were women that actually went out into the community in, from the prison and married into families. And everyone kept it very quiet. But some of those girls did not get so lucky. They went into worse situations than they had been in prison. And so for whatever reason, if she was escaping some sort of sexual slavery, uh, I looked up W.B. Graham. I did find some information about him. He was a school superintendent in a neighboring county, and there was a record uh, in, in on the Internet that popped up that was a dispute where he had apparently cheated uh, a group of uh, investors that were building a an African-American school, and he had cheated them on the amount of, so he sounds, on the amount of money that they had to pay for the property. So he was apparently not a nice person. You know, it's it can be a little confusing here that the sequence of things, and for our listeners who um, might find their heads a little muddled right now as to what is actually happening, it's probably worth it. Just a little bit of clarification after Helen goes and makes this alleged confession. She makes a confession, apparently, and is sent back to, to prison, and she gets a sentence of 10 years for killing Jim Bohatz. What is happening is that she is making a series of escape attempts that did not define her first period of incarceration, right? I mean, you, Denise, you say that um, the first six to eight months passed fairly uneventfully, but then there's this, this turn, there's this sort of a switch or twist where her behavior starts to, to radically change in prison, and there's not really a good explanation for that in, in the historical record. We talk sometimes about what we call, there's the story, but then there's the story behind the story, right? I mean, there's the underlying story which explains or helps to account for what's actually taking place on the surface. And a discussion here of what in the 30s, 40s was called white slavery, human trafficking, forced prostitution, really does help to account for this this change of events on on the surface of things, doesn't it? Yes. When my friend uh, showed me what he thought the paperwork meant, I felt like an idiot. I felt like a fool. But I also realized that I'm just the kind of person that I would not have gone to that dark place without someone explaining it to me. It's just so beyond the pale that our state, the state that I'm a sixth generation 
born and bred Arkansan would traffic women. I came up with a term for it, debt concubinage. And uh, that apparently was very widespread in in North Pulaski County to the extent that people to this day, they want to protect the women who came out of the prison and were bonded into various households and then later married the the men of those households because I'm thinking that most of these women were not cold-blooded cold-blooded criminals. They were there because it was the Great Depression. They were the poorest of the poor, and they had really no civil rights at all. Yeah, and we don't we don't need to. Um, how little times have changed, and uh, how little we see those those structures. Um, you know, having having shifted over the years, I, I do want to say very briefly, and for listeners who may find some of this difficult to hear. Uh, we we agree there is some material in, in Denise's book which is particularly challenging. And if anyone out there uh, wishes to fast forward a few minutes, we, we do actually need to cover something that... Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, hi True Crime, Crime fans. fans. We're the co-hosts of She Goes by Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while. First in Amy's book of poetry, Doe. And then in Vanessa's documentary, She. But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes by Jane. And each week we'll be joined by a special guest who will read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker along with authors like Louise Penny and Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes by Jane wherever you get your podcasts, or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories. I find very difficult to talk about, which is uh, this sort of corporal punishment which which the prison inflicted on its inmates. Um, So feel free to fast forward a few minutes if you need to. Denise, you know, you write that Helen's attempts, she was so determined to get out of the pea farm in her second stint um, that she was willing to risk her own personal safety, bodily integrity. She was actually whipped in a way which just makes all of the horror in us as a civil society kind of rise to the fore. She was willing to risk all of that in order to get out. Uh, what was she undergoing at this at this time? Well, I had never realized that the phrase, you've got me over a barrel, goes back to when prisoners, such as Helen Spence, and there was another woman before Helen named Winona Green, who got the same treatment that we did find uh, records for it. And it's... you. Sp- they would spread eagle the naked prisoner over a barrel, like a pickle barrel, or an you know just a big oak barrel, and flog them with a leather strop called the black snake. So this was very uh, 
known. It was known. And so the people on the river were getting frantic because they were afraid that she was going to be killed in prison. You've got to remember, she's only five foot one. She was only 120 pounds, and then she lost weight in prison. She had a size five shoe. She was tiny. She was petite. And so this was, uh, this was not, not good. Her first attempt results in that punishment. She just walks off the farm. She doesn't make it very far, and then she's brought back and she's whipped. Her second escape attempt, she actually gets violently ill and she spends weeks in recovery. But here again, you know, we have the abuse of the incarcerated by the prison system. I mean, the prison doctor is subjecting her to some extremely dubious treatments, isn't he? Treatments in sort of scare quotes. Exactly. I found from the prison files uh, two, I think it was three punishment reports and they are just typed up and there's a blank space and they say how corrected and it says 10 lashes. And so there were several of these punishment reports that lined up with the timeline that I had been working from of her life. The the punishment that nearly killed her, we could never find a piece of paper that said she was punished for escaping. How was she punished? It was it was not in the file. And so she came back into the barracks with a high fever. She couldn't walk. And then her kidneys Everything started failing. So then they took her into the infirmary and basically subjected her to medical torture. Uh, Just a series of horrendous, just hour after hour of trigger warning, (laughs) trigger warning. These were enemas and douches, and it, it, it just boggles the mind and... She eventually was so close to death that the prison finally sent her to a real hospital, but they didn't send her to Little Rock, which I thought was interesting. They sent her all the way to BB, Arkansas. So I think that they were worried about word getting out, and they did not send her to Little Rock where there might have been someone to find out what was going on. So she was in this hospital in BB and recovered. But when she came back to the prison, she still had to take digitalis because she basically was so uh, abused that it gave her a heart attack. Right. And digitalis, as we know, is is a poisoning agent as well in the wrong doses. Oh, great. <laughs> the thing that the thing that got me the worst, I mean, it's it's all terrible, your account of this. And I had very difficult time reading uh, these chapters, Denise. But the thing that got me the most was after one of her attempts, one of her next to last attempts, the the pea farm quite literally caged her in some of the most inhumane conditions imaginable, searing summer heat uh, in direct sunlight. I mean, it's just, it's the kind of thing that, you know, you would go all the way to the Supreme Court in order to to end forever, right, in this day and age. But in that day and age, um, it was seen as a way of correcting the uncorrectable. Especially if the uncorrectable was, number one, 
a poor, quote unquote, poor person, and number two, a reviled uh, culture. Because back then, and even till today, river people are called river rats. So if you dehumanize someone as a rat, there was a lot going on in this prison that was going on at the same time on the other side of the world in Germany. It mirrored a lot of the abuses of the Nazis. Um, They classified her as some kind of inferior, a medical term that the Nazis used as well. And the cage, uh, there, there was more than one of those because apparently it was a thing in Arkansas prisons at the time to cage people. There is a wonderful, wonderful museum in Stuttgart in Arkansas County called the Museum of the Grand Prairie, and they have one of these cages. And when I first saw it, It had a teeny tiny bunk towards the top of the cage where you would be like lying with like eight inches, you know, on this teeny tiny bunk. The cage was maybe eight feet by eight feet. And they had a mannequin wrapped in a quilt up on the bunk. And I was by myself in the museum and it was very dark and quiet. And I thought that that mannequin was real. And I thought I was going to have a heart attack. (laughs) It scared me so badly. Yeah. But while she was in the cage, Ben, she wrote the most beautiful poem. So her spirit was never broken. She wrote a beautiful poem talking about while I'm here and shadows play against the wall. The phrase that she uses in that poem, I think, speaks to both of us as writers, she says, you can't heal the heart with no work for the hand. So I pick up my pencil and do what I can. That's a good line. Yeah, that's a great line. Uh, nice little tight couplet there. You know, this is a story of of terrible horror at this moment, right? I mean, just make your skin crawl, what they've done to this woman. But from the very beginning, Denise, you write that Helen had always been a a sort of embodiment of resilience. She had grown up in this self-sufficient community. She had learned all these amazing things about how to survive from her father, whom she loved so much, and from her family. Uh, she had managed to make it uh, to uh, into a bad marriage and got out of a bad marriage, you know, on her own two feet, right, and and she had survived year after year after year in very trying circumstances, as we said, you know, in one of the poorest states, in one of the poorest periods of the country's history. She was resilient. And what struck me in this account, even in the sort of the depths of this prison experience that she's going through, she, she survives all of that. She survives the lashing. She survives the the infections. The, she, invi- uh, she survives, excuse me. She survives the lashing. She survives the uh, the illnesses and the infections and the the sort of torturous medical treatments. She survives being caged, and she survives long enough uh, that these parts of her story have come down to us. So, as as awful as this horror is, there is something still so much to admire about Helen's life. But we do need to look at her last escape attempt, which is in 
July 1934. And tell us what happened. She survived because she used her talent, which turned out to be sewing. And she used her superpower, which turns out to be her sense of humor, so that her spirit was never broken. Take us to her final escape attempt. So what happened in July 1934? She had been working in the laundry because they did not trust her to work in the fields. And so she had saved up a bunch of gingham, red and white checked cotton napkins, sewed them into the lining of her prison dress because she was listening to Catherine, who kept warning the prisoners that the prison had a scheme to take the girls up to Memphis to the cat house and return money back to the prison. And Helen took it very seriously because she had been paroled into the hands of an unscrupulous character. So she escaped. They found her. It was the dress that was her ticket out, and they punished her severely. So then the final escape, she was out in the field again, and she just walked away. After she went and got some of her digitalis, because she had fainted, she was supposedly in a strawberry patch, hoeing, and she just climbed over the barbed wire fence and disappeared. Now, there is an account in a magazine that is called, uh, it's some kind of exploitative, true detective type from the 1930s, a 10-cent magazine. But the value there was the grand jury testimony because there was a witness who was there to work on the pea farm's water pump. And he states that it seemed to him that Frank Martin, who was the trusty guard, and V.O. Brockman, who was the husband of the prison matron, uh, they both let her walk away. So it seemed to him that they weren't making any attempt whatsoever to go after her. And so she continued uh, nine miles. She made it nine miles in less than 24 hours away from there under heavy, heavy uh, forested, thickly forested area. And she came out onto a dirt road and we've interviewed and they're in our documentary the nephew of the woman whose house she stopped at first and asked for a ride to Little Rock. Uh, her name was, I believe, Hazel. And she jumped off the porch and ran off into the fields to get her husband because he was out plowing. And when they came back, Helen was gone. And she made it further down the road. I believe it was Carmichael Road, which is still there. And there were two women standing out in a yard, and they had just finished hanging the laundry. And there's a beautiful well out in that yard. It's still there. It's, it's dry, but it's still there. I've been there. And Helen wandered up and asked them for a drink of water. Well, they went to the well because this was the height of the dirty 30s. It was a terrible heat wave, terrible drought. So it was July 1934. It was miserable. And the lady, uh, May Bearden, went to the well, drew her some water, 
gave her a drink, and then Helen thanked her and went down the road. But suddenly, here comes a truck with two men in it, and they pull right up to her and shot her behind the right ear in front of the two women standing there. And May Bearden went and took a sheet off the line and went and covered her body out of respect. You know, again, as with the scene in the courthouse where there's sort of chaos and pandemonium and conflicting witnesses and nobody's really sure what's happening, you have some of the same chaos of the accounting for what happened on that day on Carmichael Road. And there's questions over, did she or didn't she pull a gun? Did she or didn't she put up a fight? Did she or didn't she just keep walking away even as her captors approach her. You know, what I, what I found so sadly plausible was the conclusion that you reach, which is that she did not just escape of her own volition, is that a trap was set, is that she was lured into escaping so that this time the guards could just kill her, that in the eyes of the prison warden, and the prison system, Helen Spence was easier to deal with dead than alive. Yes, and the quote from Ms. Brockman is just bone-chilling. When she was told that Helen Spence was dead, she literally responded with, well, that is a great burden off my shoulders. And uh, there was a photograph that when I went back for the second edition of the book to include the information that had come to light. There was a photograph that I was given, but I had to wait until the person who gave it to me retired from the parks department, the state parks department. She had been given that photograph from her boss as he was retiring. And he had been given that photograph from his boss as he was retiring. It was passed down in much the same way that the oral tradition was. And this photo, which I then included in the book, and it's also in our film, shows what I believe to be the most damning image. She is lying there. She has obviously been shot. She is in the road. There is blood on the back of her neck. And you can tell that she has been killed and she is lying there in the road. Somebody ripped open her blouse and shoved a huge pistol down into her bra, into her brassiere, which, of course, at that time, they were all handmade. So it was a very, you know, it was not a a brassiere like you would imagine. It was a a hand-sewn garment that could never, ever bear the weight of a giant gun, And they did that to take a photograph of her and have it as a trophy. And the people in the parks department were so horrified that they they kept that in secret and passed it down to me. That's remarkable. That's um, I'm so glad that you could bring that uh, to light, Denise. Speaking of trophies, her her indignity does not cease at the moment of her passing, you write that there was a major controversy 
in the days after she was killed about her body being put on display. Yes, because at this time period, when Helen was killed, it was, I'm thinking it was less than a month or two after the big Bonnie and Clyde shootout, their bodies were taken back to Texas and put on display, sold 500,000 copies of the newspaper that had the photographs of their, you know, their bullet riddle car, their bodies on display. That was a big deal in the Great Depression to sell 500,000 copies of a newspaper. So a similar situation. Big deal now. <laughs> exactly. Who knew? Who knew that by the time I got to this point in this project, there would be no newspapers of any account. Anyway, so her body was put on display in North Little Rock. And one of my readers, one of my wonderful detective readers, actually went to the funeral home and found in their roster the 1934 page where that's how we found out that her birth date was February 23rd, 1912, because there is no birth certificate because she was born on a houseboat. So that record was still there. The people came to view her body. And then when it went to Arkansas County, there was a similar situation, which really riled up the river people. They did not want her body on display. So they came and kidnapped it. <laughs> that, and that was the final twist, is that one night her body disappears. Yes. And there was also stories that, you know, there was a different burial with sandbags in the coffin because they didn't want to admit that her body was missing. But the actual situation was that the river people took her and put her in the Potter's Field section of the St. Charles Cemetery, which is a beautiful historic cemetery. And you'll be happy to know that while I was on my trip to visit the Jenkins folks, I uh, we planted a yellow rose bush and a bunch of grape hyacinths at her grave. Oh, that is wonderful. How good of you to do that. Let's talk about epilogues. Um, there are some aftermaths here that we need to to consider because this is a story that has been woven throughout the history of this part of of Arkansas for decades and decades and decades. And I want to ask you just a few questions about specific people who were involved along the way and kind of what happened to them after Helen died because their involvement did not end, right? They were keeping parts of the story to themselves or they were um, harboring materials, right, which would be pertinent to the case. Start with Helen's own family. She had one uncle left. Her younger sister, who was an invalid, had been taken to Oklahoma, and she had a little bit of extended family. But what what happened to them after she was killed? Well, we were able to... Uh received some photographs of Uncle Pless, Pless Spence, and he just looks like a sweet, sweetheart, elderly gentleman holding up a ginormous fish. He was a river man 
on the river. So there was Pless Spence, and then there was Margaret Spence, who was interviewed. She was Cicero's mother, and she said that in the interview that her house was in view of the St. Charles Cemetery, and St. Charles is such a teeny tiny town that I, I, I was in the cemetery, and there are several houses, and it's it's the heart of the town, really. Um, what happened was, it all came out that Helen Spence had never written a note on the back of a rejection slip for her memoir that she wrote and tried to get published, which got rejected and sent back to the address of the pea farm. So they kept that and I'm sure used that as an excuse to double down on her. But according to the corrupt prison officials, there was a slip of paper that was the rejection slip to her story, and she had written on it, I will never be taken alive. Well, because Helen Spence was a writer and a poet and a very prolific letter writer, especially to her sister, they were able to to stand her signature side by side and prove in the this was the one time that the newspapers really got it right because it was undeniable. It was obviously a forgery that led to a grand jury and the grand jury determined that Mr. And Mrs. Brockman had to go. They lost their jobs. They went back to star city. There was never any investigation as to whether their adult son might've been a trigger man. Frank Martin took the rap. He was paroled because that was his gift from the state. And the superintendent of the prison system, Stedman, Mr. Stedman, who had written notes that were in the prison file saying, do not let her escape. She must not escape. Lock her in the cage. His He answered to the lieutenant governor, because there was some back and forth between the superintendent, Mr. Stedman, and the lieutenant governor. So knowing how lieutenant governors operate in Arkansas, I'm thinking that the governor of Arkansas at the time, whose famous quote from the 1930s was, the poor are not worth the powder and lead it would take to blow out their brains. That was his famous quote. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Mr. Stedman lost his job. Everyone was disgraced. They ended the trustee guard program because obviously convicted murderers should not be turned loose with guns around, you know, enslaved women. Uh, but nothing ever happened. You would think. You would, you would think. think. Yes. But nothing ever happened to the lieutenant governor. And it certainly did not rise to the level of where was the governor's involvement in this. So heads rolled, but... You know, there is another interesting twist. Not much changed. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I lied when I said there was only one more twist. There's actually one more twist, which is, uh, you write, that Frank Martin, after he was paroled, he went off to raise a family. There's some speculation that he might have been poisoned uh, as at the end of his life. He did not die a natural death. And there's some question marks surrounding that. Oh, that was one of Mr. Brown's. He was steadfast in that because he got the story from the lady at the grocery in Casco. And Casco is another very eerie 
depopulated spooky place. I got lost trying to find it in the Delta and it just, it, it was bizarre, very strange vibe in Casco. And the, the grocery store um, that Frank Martin came to, he would always brag that he was the one who killed Helen Spence as if that's something to brag about. And he didn't realize that the lady behind the counter was from the river and he came in to buy a loaf of bread and she sold him a different loaf and said, this one tastes just as good, but it's cheaper. And he took it home and had dinner and did not wake up the next morning. And at the time he had been suffering (laughs) at the time he had been suffering from an extended illness, but Mr. Brown is adamant that the river got him because that's what they said. The river got him. There are a lot of folks in your account, Denise, who, according to river people, just needed killing. Now, let me ask you this: <laughs> you have two other, you have two other individuals who um, are central to this story. One we've spoken a lot about, which is L.C. Brown, your your sort of friend, your confidant, you know, the, the gentleman who really opened up this story for you. Uh, I want to hear what happened to him, but but we also need to hear about a man whose whose name has not come up very much, but who harbored possibly the most important secret of all, which was uh, the location of Helen's body, and that man was John Black. So tell us what happened to Elsie, and then tell us tell us about the end of John Black's uh, time in this story. Well, Elsie. Uh... He never forgot his first true friend. You know, his heart was always with Helen Spence. And he went on to have an amazing life. He had learned Italian and German from playing with the river people because they were a multi-ethnic community. And there were descendants that were a mix, but then there were communities that still kept their language, like the Italian families and the German families. And so he learned how to speak that so well that when he enlisted in the army at the age of 17 to go fight in World War II, uh, they put him in the special forces and made him, because he was always a great shot, he was a crack shot, he was the only person I've ever met who literally could fire a gun and light a match by hitting the head of the match with the bullet. I'm serious. And uh, so he, believe it or not, but I know. So he went behind enemy lines and was a sniper and got all these medals from World War II. And then when he came back, he decided to move with his wife, who he met in DeWitt, to Hot Springs. And he flourished in Hot Springs and had a number of different businesses. For a while, he was a Hot Springs Police Department. Um, he was a he was a cop on the beat in Hot Springs, but they were they they were almost as corrupt as the pea farm. So he got out of that and became a long haul trucker. He worked. He had an upholstery business for boating, and and everyone brought their boats to him to to do their upholstery. And so he raised a large family, had grandchildren. And was very, very beloved and told me some amazing stories, not just about Hot Springs, but also about what he experienced as an 18-year-old sniper during World War II. 
I mean, he's like a he's like a shadow presence throughout the story. He pops up and then he disappears, and he pops up again and then he disappears. But he's always got these sort of secret motivations and sort of sly uh, attempts at at. Uh, well, suffice to say, uh, he he reminded me of a ninja. Ah, that's very good because I've never been able to run across a photograph of John Black. He was that reclusive, and he was older than uh, Elsie Brown, and he had been living in St. Charles, had gotten married, had moved off the river, and then when he was elderly, that was when he called Elsie Brown down to come visit him in I believe it was the late, yes, it was the late 70s. It was right before he died. He knew he was dying. And it took Elsie three times going down there to visit with him before he could finally get the reason for the visit out of Mr. Black. He was apparently very taciturn. There's still some uh, descendants of his that live in the area. I've been to his headstone. Um, anyway, he finally told Elsie on the third visit that the reason that he wanted him to come was that he had to pass down this story to him, that Mr. Black had volunteered to be the caretaker of the, cha- of the St. Charles Cemetery just so he could tend in secret Helen's grave. And he would go on the anniversary of her death and pick flowers from other graves and put them together with wildflowers and put them on her grave. But then when the sun came up, he would put the flowers back on the other graves because he did not want anyone to ever disturb her resting place. And it was in the far corner. It's in the far corner. And after my book came out, the, the Arkansas County, the funeral home found the little teeny tiny metal marker for Cicero's grave that had literally been in storage since 1930. And so they went and put it next to the cedar tree that John Black planted at the head of her grave. And then Mr. Brown, because he was a war hero, although he would tell me, no, the heroes are the ones that did not get to come home. Don't call me a hero, but he's my hero. He told me that he got some of his Uh, army buddies to bring ground penetrating radar and they came to the spot where the cedar tree is and there is a body to have you know that they were never romantically involved they were just friends and to have stolen her body to have buried it to have tended it and to have kept the secret of where it is for 40 years before he died to be the only living soul that knew where this woman was buried. That is a story of devotion, the likes of which we do not see anymore, do we? Well, that's that's how I feel about my husband. And even though John Black was never romantically involved. Touché. Yes. <laughs> even yeah. though John Black was never romantically involved with Helen Spence, he was very close to her growing up. He watched her grow up and he was friends with Cicero. So it was an honor for him to be able to carry that secret. And he had to choose who he thought would be the one who could carry it when he no longer could. And he said, wait until I'm dead, because he did not want people gossiping about, well, did John Black, you know, romantically love Helen Spence? 
No, Elsie told me, he said, they were just buddies. Haven't you ever had a buddy? And that's really the secret of the river people is that you can have that kind of love. And it has nothing to do with romance. It has everything to do with honor and respect. The last character that I want to ask you about is not Helen, not Jack, not John, but the White River itself. You write that in the late 1930s, the river people began to experience a number of changes that were not possible to resist or stop given the movement of the country uh, at large. And it's a tragic tale, but again, it's a tale of resilience. And I was wondering if you could just give us a sense of what the area around the White River and this particular community looks like today. Okay, yes, I can, because I was just there. I left my heart in St. Charles, Arkansas. I was just there. Um, So it started the diaspora, which to me is caused by basically cultural genocide from our own government in a true bipartisan fashion. Democrats and Republicans alike have hated on the river people and destroyed our way of life, beginning when the dams went in upstream, and then the game wardens were given the, you know, they they made the refuges, they had taken all the the land, 166,000 acres of the most fertile bottomland was taken, and people were paid maybe 30 cents on the dollar, because a lot of river people had land that they farmed on, and then they preferred to live on the houseboats because it was such a groovy, chill way to live. Just throw a hook in the water and you got your breakfast. You know what I mean? And my family, we have in our documentary footage in the 1950s of my family bathing in the river with a big cake of lye soap. It was that clean. It was that clean as as recently as the late 1950s. So after the dams went in, after the federal government took so much of the bottom land and turned it into, quote unquote, federal wildlife refuges, well, it was, you know, not so much for wildlife, but to keep river people out and make them have to leave. And so our houseboats were burned and sank. And as recently as the 1990s, there were a huge community of houseboats that had been, quote unquote, grandfathered in. And I went there just the other day to look at where all these houseboats used to be. It's in Arkansas County where I was visiting. And every single one of those houseboats was burned and sunk by the U.S. government because the people could not afford to tow their houseboat out of there, and they were only given a matter of days to take all of their personal possessions and belongings and leave. And then you see, well, in our documentary, the bridge at St., not at St. Charles, the bridge at Clarendon, which was a National Historic Register-listed landmark, that people in Arkansas were fighting to save as a pedestrian viewing platform in the most beautiful place you've ever seen, blown up in November of 2019. 
right before COVID. And that is the history. But today, it's beautiful. It's green. It's quiet. There's birds everywhere. All you can hear is bird song and wind chimes. I saw I saw a coyote when we were on our way to visit Levon Helms' birthplace in nearby Marvel. <laughs> it's it's the most beautiful beautiful place and there are still mussel shells. There are still beautiful pearls. There there is everything there except the support for the people who have been robbed. That's what's missing. Well, these are difficult um, forces to grapple with. But one thing that remains true, Denise, is that if this community uh, has had you as a historian to listen to the ghosts of the past and to tell their story over the past century, uh, I have every confidence that you will continue to serve in that capacity and listen to those whispers that the wind carries to your ears. So thank you so much for sharing this place with us. Uh, thank you for sharing this incredible saga of one of the most resilient women ever to grace the pages of a history book. <laughs> um, it's been a real privilege to have you. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. And when we christen the Helen Spence Memorial Ferry at Clarendon, which is going to be the rest of my life's work from here on till I die, you will get an invitation. I will be there with a fishing rod. Yes. Yes. Thanks for listening. Our guest this week has been Denise Parkinson, author of Daughter of the White River, Depression, Era, Treachery, and Vengeance in the Arkansas Delta, available from ArcadiaPublishing.com. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press, and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. A special thanks to our producer, Bill Huffman, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, production director, Bridget Coyne, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To find out more about Crime Capsule and our dozens of other shows, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight cisgender white men and the victims of true crime are not a monolith either she's wendy and i'm beth and together we host fruit loop serial killers of color a true crime podcast together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold we also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve at fruit loops we're serving up true crime with a side of history society culture and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.